0: This is the week of the consecration or Praan Pratishthan in Ayodhya with humongous political implications. So it follows that national interest this week is looking at those implications particularly for those who do not like Mr. Modi, Narendra Modi, his government, his ideology. Should they be giving up? Some of them sound like they are giving up. Some of them sound like... This is the end of the Indian Republic, etc. So, we are talking to them this week. So, please stay with me as I roll out this week's argument on national interest. However, before I go there, let me also give you my my periodic reminder that the journalism we do and which you like is only possible because many good people like you pay for this journalism. You take paid subscriptions. But the fact is not enough of you have done it as yet. A lot more of you watch us read us listen to us then pay for our work so please those of you who haven't yet taken a paid subscription please do so you will have instructions on the screen on how to do it there will also be a link with the description with this video please please click on that and also if you have taken a subscription in the past then please renew it Top it up, it's very important. That said, let me get down to the argument for the week, for this very important political week. Every once in a while, I've been sharing with you on video and also on podcast some of my earlier articles in the 10 Narendra Modi years. We started recording videos on national interest articles only from 2018 onwards. So there is a lot more before that which is not yet available in these formats on these media, on these platforms. The second thing is that the selection of columns, national interest columns in the Modi decade is now in the the works. So just as earlier we had anticipating India, which was the selection of my political columns until the rise of Narendra Modi. The next set is now coming up. I think it will come out around time results of this election come out. So you can also see what we got right and what we got wrong. So while that compilation and that editing of those columns are going on, I am also using this opportunity to share with you some of the earlier ones so that you can also figure out what we got right, what we got wrong and also to give you a foretaste of what's coming up in this selection. So this particular column in fact was written in 2015 about Dr. Manmohan Singh. That is when he had... He had begun to face court cases for corruption. He was being, all kinds of charges were being thrown at him and it looked like he might land up in the court exactly the same way as Narsim Rao had in the past. So on 12th of March, 2015, when all these cases were staring Manmohan Singh in his face, the headline of that article was, why didn't you want to resign Dr. Singh? And this is how my argument unfolded. In his first conversation with Parvez Musharraf, Dr. Manmohan Singh gave the general a professorial tutorial on exercise of state power. You and I are both accidental leaders of our nations, he said. We were not expected to reach where we have. which Musharraf could have disputed, as anybody who gets commissioned as an officer in Pakistan's army already knows, he's a candidate for the top office. And we don't know if Musharraf did dispute this. But to get back to serious stuff, the professor told the general that holding public office is like holding public trust. You can't have it and do nothing with it. His point therefore was, let's get a move on with peace process, whatever our respective political capital. How close the two coincidental, if not accidental, leaders got to an agreement on Kashmir has now been revealed quite authoritatively in a bunch of writings by former Pakistani Foreign Minister Kasuri, all first in his statements and interviews and then in his book and we have seen more coming out in Mr. Dulat's book etc. It's a question I wish Singh had asked himself at various points in his second term when his party, Tenjanpath and its commissars persistently destroyed his authority. They ruined his name and legacy and diminished the prime minister's office so much that it disgusted electorate turned to Narendra Modi for his promise of an all-powerful prime minister's office, Gujarat style. But while there is no alibi for his in-house tormentors, I wonder if he sometimes also repeated to himself the line he had spoken to Musharraf. If he actually believed public office was public trust, Did he do enough to justify it in his second innings? Or did he fail the test he had himself set for national leaders? Public office is public trust. You can't have it and do nothing with it. Let me first get disclosures and disclaimers out of the way. I was an admirer of Dr. Singh and continue to be one. He gave me the gift of time and trust that we journalists value. In my own writings and in the newspaper, I then edited his economic and foreign policies, particularly the nuclear deal found robust support. All that's a matter of record. In his quiet power struggle with the party, I weighed in on his side, believing that only he, among top Congress leaders, had the combination of intellectual, moral and tina. There is no alternative. That clout to save us from a return to really bad povertyarian socialism. Since I I'm, am since I'm old-fashioned and do not accept the new norms where off-record conversations are revealed, Confidences not kept and sources betrayed and with self-righteousness, I will not reveal whatever he may have shared with me in confidence during the many conversations we had. I will reveal, however, one point I once made to him cheekily, saying that history will blame him for many things, but will not give him any credit for the bad things he saved us from in a political setup where awful new ideas floated twice a week. He shrugged me off then, bit with a bit of disapproval. But now, as I wrote, as he prepared to go to court, accused of corruption and criminal breach of trust, he would have reflected on the amount of time, energy and political capital. He lost fighting these really bad ideas, stalling or diluting them to minimize the damage they could have caused as with the original sweeping Narega right to education and food bills all but diluted on land acquisition he lost out fully as rahul had been convinced by his cotillas this was the party's ticket with third term we know what happened after that in these five years his second five years there were many junctures when he could have drawn the line dr Singh could have said no i will not take it anymore The first blow was his party's repudiating the agreement he reached with his Pakistani counterpart at Sharmil Sheikh to resume the dialogue process, suspended after the 26-11 attacks. It was the first time in our history that a party had vetoed its own prime minister on a key foreign policy issue and it was done in public. He fretted to his close aides over his environment minister writing letters to him on controversial issues taking a line at variance with his and, and leaking them so he would read them in newspapers first. His do-nothing defense minister, that's A.K. Antony, wouldn't listen to him, wouldn't move on acquisitions. He was slowing progress, including jo- on joint exercises with the U.S. and once notably in 2012, invoking higher-ups for a veto on a decision, important national security decisions, which had the approval on the, of the cabinet committee of security his party's old ideologies came back to blight him on economics as well as foreign policy through those 10 years there was hardly any top level exchange with israel although it continued to be a key strategic ally in those years particularly in the aftermath of to 26-11, dambram was forced to cancel his US and Israel visits for fear of political implications which reads, unfortunately, Muslim vote. It's so unfair to Indian Muslims. And as worries grew on economic slowdown, not only did Pranam Mukherjee, the last statist, refuse to listen to him on retrospective tax, he even dismissed his plea that RBI governor, then D. Subbarao be nudged to cut interest rates. You ask him, you give him two-year extension, not I he is believed to have said, in the presence of a couple of senior economic officials before walking off. In fact, some of those said that you can also figure out from Pranam Mukherjee's memoirs. Sonia and her advisors started the practice of writing letters to him on populist issues and making them public. This had a twin objective, to give the family credit for all pro-poor policies and to distance them from anything vaguely risky, reformist or likely unpopular. He wasn't allowed to pick his people in the PMO, forced to drop his loyal media advisor. And while it is simplistic to say that files were taken to Sonia, key decisions, even bureaucratic appointments, were cleared with her. Latin zone is brutal, like the core of any capital city. Once it figures where the power rests, the rest do not matter, whatever their designations. His admirers, including this columnist, watched his frustration as he allowed himself to be diminished in moral stature and political authority, becoming the butt of nasty jokes. When Rahul repudiated in public that corruption ordinance while Singh was overseas, we had hoped that this was enough humiliation. But he disappointed his admirers who watched in frustration as he declined going into silences, refusing to say anything in public on key issues, as if in a sulk or self-pity. And I can promise you that he is not inarticulate. Far from it. His last televised full interview was with me in the run-up to the, to the 2004 elections and he spoke with passion, intellect and conviction. How do we know he was no Monmohan? Mohan? In his first term, he showed flashes of his articulation. On the nuclear deal, in the second, he was on a monvrat, undermining himself, his government and ultimately his party. Why did he give up his moral and constitutional authority without a fight? He confessed often that he was an appointed prime minister, not an elected one. But then why did he not insist that he contest for Lok Sabha, particularly in 2009? I think his party bosses were quite happy to see him that way a bureaucrat-like, compliant prime minister serving at their sufferance. But if he had insisted that to have real authority, he had to be in the house of the people, his party would have had no choice, would have been compelled to give him a safe seat, much as it may have preferred to keep him a bonsai. It is useful to look at what what the scholar Moises Naeem, currently at Carnegie, and formerly editor-in-chief of Foreign Policy magazine says in his book, The End of Power, From boardrooms to battlefields and churches to states. Why being in charge isn't what it used to be. The world over, he says, power no longer buys as much as it used to. Power is eroding. It is easier to get but harder to use and easier to lose. Further, with 24-hour TV, social media and the tyranny of real time, power players now often pay a steeper and more immediate price for their mistakes. That's what Nayam writes. Flush with its victory on the nuclear deal, the UPA won its second, much larger mandate in 2009. Then began the spiral of mistakes, compounded by Singh retreating without a fight. His power, authority and political capital now were lost rapidly. As Naim explains in his book, by 2010, he was a lame duck. Unless the terms of engagement were changed to restore his basic authority, he should have threatened to quit or quit. My belief is Sonia and Rahul would have relented. They were not about to trust Pranab with the job. That he chose not to do so is the real disappointment and it is worth exploring why. JN that is Mani Dikshit was his first pick as national security advisor, our former foreign secretary. Dikshit never tired of telling me that he had served every PM in India's history and that Manmohan Singh was the most selfless of all of them. Dikshit passed away sadly early in his tenure or we would have had the benefit of his insights as to why Singh did not stand up for his office. As we watch the tragedy of our most self-effacing, clean and intellectual prime minister walking in and out of the courtroom, we have to ask him a tough question. Did he himself flunk the test he had set for Musharraf? If he treated public office as public trust, he wouldn't have let it be undermined. If he did not? Did he then put his feudal loyalties to the family above the public trust? Did he, th- did he think he must not embarrass the family, whatever the cost, to his office and to his stature? He probably did. And though not even his worst enemies would find, would believe that the court will find finally find anything on him and it didn't. And I still think history will judge him more kindly than journalism. He will also be remembered as a great leader and patriot who denied himself real greatness by putting his feudal loyalty above his above his own dictat of public trust.